Hi, this is Shirley Jones, and you're listening to TV Confidential. Greg Airbar is with us uh, for a, another look at recently released DVD and streaming titles that we recommend as part of your home entertainment library. This week, Greg is actually going to talk about a book, but it relates to what title, whose DVD release, and whose record history, because the Partridge family made a lot of records when they were producing the TV series. There's a book on the Partridge family out that Greg wants to talk about. Yes, and there have been many, many books about the Partridge family, from uh, the book that David Cassidy wrote, which was a very interesting uh, book, and there were, uh, golly, from almost every standpoint. In fact, uh, uh, there's a fairly recent book that uh, Dave Madden finished before he passed that his uh, wife, Ruben, Sandra. Ruben on like, Rye. Yeah, Ruben on Rye. And, uh, W-R-Y. So, yeah. So there, it, it's been covered in, in many different ways, sometimes with fondness, sometimes with n- not nice. And, you know, it's it's it isn't fair to do that. I in, in preparation for this, I took a look at the various TV incarnations of the retrospectives. You know, there was a an E Entertainment thing. There were several retrospectives, and then there was a TV movie, uh, "Come On, Get Happy," which was pretty sardonic when it came to how it approached the show itself and the music. And some of it was was true, but it was handled in a how dumb kind of the show was and the show was not dumb it was frothy and silly but for its day it tried as best as it could to tackle what it could and maybe and today it looks sometimes cringy in that it, it wouldn't have done it a few years later that way but it was doing the best it could for 1970 and it was sharper writing than it needed to be because you've got to remember you know bernard slade developed it who went on to write same time next year, no slouch as a, as a writer. And Paul Younger Witt was the showrunner of the first year who went on to do Golden Girls and he was with Thomas Harris. So, in fact, I uh, met him when I did the Golden Girls presentation for D23 and we talked about it and he enjoyed working on it, but he could see the problems that the kids were having. He said that was the toughest part of the show was the the issues with the kids because you know i think that's well known that that there were some issues with that and i don't want to get into that um because this book the name of which is called when we're singing by johnny ray miller who is a producer director and uh has worked with the partridge family worked with a lot of artists he wrote this book that i just this is a kind of book that i savor and I actually like to go back and reread parts of because what he did is he wrote a very comprehensive history of the Partridge family, but from the standpoint of the music and records. But he also put in a lot of detail about the show's history and the people behind it. So it's not just a annotated discography. He didn't just go in and play the records and said, this song's good because this song's not so good because his good and not so good is an educated good and not so good. Here's why this song is stronger than the other, which comes from an educated standpoint. I think what you're trying to say is he comes at it with some knowledge of 
the industry some knowledge of music, which sets him apart from most other such analysis of the Partridge Family uh, discography. It's it's the subtitle is the Partridge Family and their music. It would be comparable as if you wrote the book because you have some knowledge well, and understanding I, of the of, I of the will music mention industry. That I am I have a book coming out in 2023 that's very similar to this. It's it's Hanna Barbera, the recorded history, and it's going to be a history of Hanna Barbera the studio, but it's going to be from the standpoint of their recording history because there are hundreds of Hanna-Barbera related recordings, but they tell the story of the studio in a way that's never been told before. And in the same way, the strength of the Partridge family is a lot of it has to do with the music. And a lot of it that is true about the Partridge family that makes it unique is how good that music is and how incredibly skilled and professional and how much care went into making those records. There were eight original albums and there were two compilations, one with one extra song and several CDs that came afterwards. And still to this day, some unreleased songs. There are fans out there that would just love to see reissues. I would love to see a slipcased vinyl collection. I don't know why it isn't done. It may just be, legal issue but i think that would be snapped up just like anything and they've done it with the monkeys i don't think they realize what they have the partridge family but what you come away with maybe more more executives need to read this book because what you come away with here is how powerful it all was how much they learned from the monkeys because the partridge family is even though the bus went over a lot of bumpy roads, and there's going to be bumpy roads with any series, any movie, you'll always read about difficulties along the way. There was a lot that they got more right with the Partridge family than they did with the Monkees, because the Monkees was a grand experiment. And just like the Monkees wasn't just the Hard Day's Night and a prefab for it, there was a whole lot more to it than that, and it gets dismissed. There was a whole lot more to this. This wasn't just the cow cells. It was certainly inspired by the cow cells. It was also, according to um, Bernard Slade, it was The Sound of Music, which was extremely popular even in the late 60s. It was a singing family, but it was an American family that sang pop. It was a family sitcom with pop music. And the first season was them on tour. And there in the music business, the last seasons were more of a domestic comedy where they had a song in there. The Monkees was a different show because it was musicians that had zany adventures, more wild adventures, and then a romp. Whereas the Partridge Family, even though it was a dream life in a way, it had to be more grounded. And usually their musical numbers, believe it or not, they wanted to have a sense of reality to it, to the point where there was never a secret that they weren't singing especially the kids. I mean, they never were singing. It was Shirley Jones and it was David Cassidy. I'll explain how they did that. That's what's so great about this book. It explains everything, but they still wanted it to feel real. And so the way they did, for example, the drumming for the little boy, Chris, they had one of the best drummers. They had every musician was the best. It was the wrecking crew. Nothing better than the wrecking crew. You know, they had Hal Blaine on drums for real. But when when uh, when Brian Forster was on camera, they had 
a drummer on a this great drummer on a ladder to his side. And sometimes you can see him looking, and he was air drumming the right moves, and he was following it so that it looked like it was in sync. They wanted it to feel away. Here's another thing. Most of the Partridge Family records have very little reverb. This is on some of them there is, but most of them have virtually no reverb because they wanted to have that impression. This is astonishing to me. They wanted to have that impression that it sounded like a group playing in their house or garage. They went to that much trouble. They mixed this stuff specifically. There were also records pressed specifically to give to the cast for them to practice on. Sometimes they weren't done, but there were also records for editing and those cuts were made specifically to be shorter sometimes they were arranged differently because when you watch them on the show they'll be shorter they will cut abruptly they will end they were made in the studio the same at the same time they were made for the show at the same time but those were pressed specifically for screen gems when you look at this book you in the center there's all this color uh, there's a color center you'll see what those discs look like and you'll see you know abc cut uh, screen gems cut, things like that. So there's a lot of the memorabilia in there, but there's also stuff you'd never see that it was made that way. And the big question, you know, is Shirley Jones really on the records? Yes, Shirley Jones was on every one of the records. She came in usually early and recorded an entire album, usually in uh, one session, and they recorded her on a separate track. Uh, you can hear her more on some songs than on others, just based on what the vocal arrangement is. Just like, and I'll give you an example. If you hear the monkey song, A Little Bit Me, A Little Bit You, you can hear Neil Diamond in the backup. You can just hear him because his voice is distinctive, but you can't always hear people specifically in backups. But in some of the Partridge Family songs, it depends on the way, if, it, if a soprano is more emphasized, you can kind of hear her. Now, there's some that say, well, when she was on camera more, they might bring her up or bring her down. That's true in the Christmas episodes. And the, there is a very well-loved Christmas episode they really love doing. With Dick Jagger. Album, yeah, and they all love doing that. And the Christmas album is unique in that she got to do a solo of a Christmas song. She got to do a duet with her stepson, David Cassidy. And there are a couple songs that, that actually emphasize the vocalists who are singing for the family. Uh, that's another interesting thing. If you really know the show, you'll probably know that the first album has no David Cassidy on some of the cuts. And that, and this is something the TV movie kind of was true, but they didn't quite. They wanted to compress the story. They sped up his voice slightly on a couple of cuts. So they were experimenting. At first, he wasn't even singing because they didn't know he could sing. And they were trying to find what the Partridge family sound was. Did the harpsichord work? Did it not work? Was his voice suitable? Did it sound old? Did it sound young? They, he wasn't even comfortable yet with how he was singing. You can hear a change in his voice. And then David Cassidy's idea of, of great music wasn't the sunshine pop you know bubble gum is is not considered a flattering term um, they call it sunshine pop they call it all kinds of things their music sometimes was easy listening not always a flattering term either um, it's unfair that this stuff gets denigrated because the, the level of professionalism and the 
enduring quality of some of these songs, most of these songs, is astonishing. Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, I talk to one of them, they stay anonymous, I can't hang up, that's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh, somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today. Beautiful Anonymous. Easy listening is a format that caters mostly to adults versus listeners, uh, consumers in the 18 to 29, 18 to 39 demographic. Correct. So and it is it is yeah. denigrating only in that respect, but but it's a legitimate and it's a still popular form of music and radio right now. Yeah, and that's what the Grammys refer to now as traditional pop. That's where they put Harry Connick Jr. and Tony Bennett and people like that. So that's kind of where it would lie. And David Cassidy was he loved singing some some of those standards and he was great at it. He had he had a really, really good voice. But the kind of stuff he was doing at the time he wanted to do rhythm and blues. He loved rhythm and blues and harder rock. And later, actually, well, he was he 20 did. years old or 25 <laughs> okay. years old. Yeah, you know. And it was very frustrating for him. But again, in that TV movie, it made it look like he was nothing but complainy all the time. And while he, he certainly did complain, and eventually it got to a breaking point between him and the producer, it was nothing Mike Nesmith and Don Kirshner, you know, there was no fist in the wall. It wasn't like that. I mean, the Rolling Stone article similar but he still went in the studio and he gave it everything all of the people in this book say that all of the people in this book attest to the fact that he was extraordinary professional a really good person i mean the kind of person who ricky siegel who is you know sometimes called the oliver of the show (laughs) you know and i have his album the cousin the the cousin oliver because yeah he was introduced in the fourth season a super nice guy he he's interviewed in the book and he said he was working i think as a waiter in a restaurant years later and he went up to david cassidy and he recognized him he he couldn't have been nicer he is by and large what is i mean he has his bad days like we all do when you hear all these stories but by and large the impression you get from all these people who were locked in the studio with him for a long time was that he was a pro and even when he was hating some of the material he because it was his job and yeah occasionally there'd be flare-ups you know but it was like you gotta do it and here's the deal it's just like any other situation with when you are working with people, you'll have conflicts, but most of the time you will not because you've got a job to do. And that's the way he was. But you don't hear about that. And that's what's great about this book. You hear about the professionals at work. And the four people who really stand out are people I just deeply admire because I have so many records with these people. And because of the book I'm working on, I've interviewed uh, some of them. Ron Hicklin. He's like Hal Blaine. He is the guy who is the contractor for so many of the vocal groups 
of the late 60s all through the 70s. You hear his voice and you hear singers he's put together. Unofficially, they are the Ron Hicklin singers. I, I think I may have brought them up a couple of times on you, the show. You have, and, and for some reason, I think the quote-unquote Ron Hicklin singers sang the theme of Love American Style after the Cowstills sang it. Yes, yes, they did. The Cowstills released the single. They sang... And they, uh, sang, they sang the first season, and then they recut it for the second, third, and fourth season, and that's the version that's mostly heard in syndication, which is the Ron true. Hicklin Stingers. And they not only sang the Happy Days theme, but he worked on uh, and mostly sang almost all the Happy Days music in the background. One season of Happy Days seemed to be um, original songs. For some reason, they they weren't doing uh, covers of pop songs. So they did the Sha-la-la-la, Sha-la-la-la-la. Okay, I guess. That was them. And on Laverne and Shirley, Cindy Greco was singing the theme, but they were the woo they did a lot of woo-woo-woos. Um, the theme from MASH was the male singers. It says the Ron Hicklin singers in MASH. Sometimes they get credit, but it's just their job. So it's the Charlie Fox singers on Love America Style, and that's just fine. You know, the Maury Laws singers are credited on some of the Rankin Bass things when it's the Mike Sam singers. They'll go under any name. It doesn't matter to them because it's one session here, one session there. That's fine. Sometimes they don't even remember. They sang on almost every Hanna-Barbera show, either in the themes. They were in the, they were the Smurfs when they were singing. You know, they would just speed them up. They sang for the Bedrock Rockers on, on, uh, on Pebbles and Bam Bam. It was, it was a constant thing. They were everywhere. And these four people, it was Ron Hicklin, who was the Baylor Brothers, um, who were also in the group called the Love Generation before that. You hear them a lot. And the great Jackie Ward, um, who's one of the best session singers, best known um, as under the name Robin Ward for singing the hit song, I thank you for giving me the most wonderful summer. And the reason she used the name Robin was because she sang that as a teenage, in a teenage voice. And Robin was her daughter's name. So when she was singing on the Partridge family, she was singing for Tracy. So she was singing in a child's voice. She, she, they actually felt like they were singing for each of the family members. So Ron was kind of singing for Chris because he has a, a tenor. And the Baylors were singing for Danny and for uh, actually for Susan Day. And so they were they were singing, you know, for them. Well, it's, it's fascinating because... To be honest with you, I never thought of Tracy's voice or Chris's voice or even Danny having a voice for that matter because on nearly all of the tracks, David Cassidy's voice is dominant and to some degree Shirley Jones. Yes. Well, and that was the design. They were never supposed to be prominent after David was cast. And everybody feels very strongly that part of the success of the show was the fact that he had this singing talent as well as a comedy talent. And we'll pick up that thread with Greg on the other side of the break. Greg is talking about the new book by John Ray Miller, When We're Singing, The Partridge Family and Their Musical Talks. More with Greg when we come back on TV Confidential. This Week in TV History now has its own podcast you can enjoy. This Week in TV History with Tony Figueroa on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you find podcasts. 
be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program, or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk at tvconfidential.net, talk at tvconfidential.net. You can also message us at facebook.com forward slash tvconfidential, x.com forward slash tvconfidential, or at TV Confidential on Instagram. And if you're listening to us on the TV Confidential podcast, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. This portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first-time home buyer or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call Karen Strain at 415-886-7411. Or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you.